It's been a good morning. I didn't say good morning. I said it's been a good morning, right? It has really been a good morning. It's great music, great singing today. I love the songs that we sing. Uh, just such rich theology that reminds us of how good we have it in Jesus Christ, of our salvation and how wonderful it is. And, and then just to witness uh, the testimony of what baptism is and that it speaks the gospel to us, it preaches the gospel to us. And, uh, and to see that beautiful picture of someone whose life was dead in sin, but it's been buried in Christ and raised to new life. And so this morning we have seen the gospel, we've sung the gospel, now we're going to listen to the gospel preached. And so if you will take your Bible and find your place there in Luke chapter 18, I want to talk to you this morning about what it means to have eyes of faith, that we would see Jesus and believe on Jesus through faith. I heard about a salesman who was far from home, he was traveling in one of those business men who travel and, and kind of traveling the state and he's driving down a highway country highway he'd never been on before and so uh wasn't lost but he just never had traveled this road and so when you're traveling a new highway a new area you you look at things at least i do and that's why i tend to see rotate back and forth as i'm driving but he's he's watching looking at the countryside and he sees this old barn this barn is intriguing because it's beautiful, it's old, it's rustic, but it's intriguing because it also has on the side of it just hundreds of arrows that someone had obviously shot into the side of the barn. And within or, or around all of those arrows was this bullseye mark. And so he's driving by, he sees this, this uh, wonder, and he begins to, to, to be curious. Like, what in the world? Why would a guy do that? How did someone shoot that many arrows and hit the bullseye that many times? And so he goes a couple, you know, hundred, couple hundred yards past it, begins to decide, you know, I want to see that again. So he wheels around. He's got time for his next point. Wheels around, drives back, sees it. There's a farmhouse close by. So he decides, I'm going to run over there and just ask the farmer. So he sees the farmer out there, interacts with him a little bit. And basically, after the salutations of, hey, how are you doing? I'm traveling, saw the barn, all that thing. He's asked a question. What's the story here? How did the, someone hit all of those, get all those arrows in the bullseye? Uh, this guy must be a, a really good uh, marksman. And so the farmer hears that and begins to just laugh, kind of scoffing, like, oh, goodness, not that at all. He says that was the work of what we call the village idiot around here. He said that a guy shot all those arrows into the barn and then thought it'd be funny to get a ladder, climb up there, and, and paint a bullseye mark around those arrows to give the impression that he's a really good marksman. And so the salesman, expecting to hear this wonderful story, hears this story that lets him down, kind of gives this disappointed smirk. And you're probably having that same uh, response to this story as well. It didn't really have the thump that you were thinking it was going to have because stories and experiences like this give us the impression that things aren't always the way they seem. You see, we've lived long, life long enough that pessimism and a cynical disposition is all too often our approach to life, the way we view things. So when a story is told that makes a claim that seems to be good, our response typically is, I'll believe it when I see it. That sounds good. That sounds wonderful, but I'll believe it when I see it. it and, and maybe you sympathize with that. Maybe that resonates with you. It definitely resonates with me. 
You see, I was born and raised in Arkansas. My blood bleeds red, not because that's the color of blood, but because I'm an Arkansas Razorback fan. That's where my undergrad is. I mean, I grew up in a town right next door to Fayetteville where the school is. I mean, I am a diehard Razorback fan, even though I would love to be able to cast them to the side and root for another team. But I just can't do it. So year after year after year, I get let down because here's what happens. Just like last summer. I listen to the pundits, I listen to the talking heads, I listen to the hype, and they're telling me that, man, this is maybe our year at Arkansas, that we're going to have the top quarterback in, this, in the conference. We've got a returning defense. We've got a new defensive coordinator. We're going to be better. Perhaps this is the year that we can rival Alabama in the West, and after a 4-8 and eight season, you're let down, right? So I began to move on. I looked to basketball when that season was winding down, knowing that we had no hope whatsoever of making a bowl game. So I began to look at basketball, and, and I, again, listened to everything that's hyped up, and they're saying, look, Eric Musselman has brought all these transfers in from all these different schools. There, this is the year that we're going to move beyond the Elite Eight in the tournament. And we're looking to the Final Four, and we might even be able to contend for the national championship. And that resonates with me because I remember 1994 as a sophomore in high school, sitting there watching Arkansas beat Duke for the national championship. And what a wonderful moment that was. And I live for that moment to be reiterated in my life. And so I'm listening to the hype. I'm hoping in the hype. I'm believing the hype. And then now, sitting here at the end, well, I guess it's now it's February, at 11-11, 11 11 in the uh, in our in our schedule or in our standings, I know there's absolutely no hope for us to even make the tournament, unless Jesus Christ Himself reincarnates Himself in a player and plays for the Arkansas Razorbacks. We're not going to the tournament. So you can understand my hesitancy as I look on to the next sport. And for me, that's college baseball. And Arkansas is always a perennial powerhouse. And right now in all the polls, we are top five. And so I can't help but be a little bit hesitant about the season. Right? Pessimism, cynicism, because we understand that many times we are let down in life. I want to believe the hype, but here's my sentiment. I will believe we're good when the record says we are good. Amen? Disappointing failures create within us a hesitant outlook, a hesitant perspective. Even when it comes to someone we know to be trustworthy, many times we will doubt that trustworthy person. In that sort of situation, we will look at them and maybe say to them, but definitely we're saying to ourselves, I believe that you believe, but I will believe what you believe when I can see it take place or do see it take place in life. This passage we're looking at this morning we're going to see that the Lord and his disciples are continuing their journey. They're moving to Jerusalem, toward Jerusalem. And as they travel, Jesus is describing the events that are going to take place. He's already talked about this on some level. He's going to talk about it again with his disciples. And sadly, those disciples do not believe him. They do not understand how those things would happen. You see, for them, they could not grasp the concept of their their disciple, or their teacher, their rabbi, their leader being arrested, being mocked, being uh, flogged, being put on a cross, being killed, being resurrected. That was something they could not conceive. And yet on the flip side, as we're going to see, Luke is going to tell us about a blind man there on the outside of Jericho who believed Jesus, believed on Jesus ever before he saw him. And what I want us to discover today is that when it comes to faith, believing is seen. That's what it means to have 
true sight. And so if you've got your copy of God's Word, let's begin reading in Luke chapter 18. I want us to begin in verse 31. We'll finish the chapter this morning. I'll make two points about principles, and then I'll give you three action points this morning. Here we go. Verse 31, Luke says, In taking the twelve, Jesus said to them, See, we're going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, and will be mocked, and shamefully treated, and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him, and on the third day he will rise. But they understood none of these things. The same was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. As he drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. And hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. And they told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. When he came near, he asked him, what do you want me to do for you? To which he said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. Luke here has laid out before us a very intentional section of Scripture. He orders this very intentionally. See, in the first set of verses that we read, the Lord is meeting privately with his disciples. He is instructing them and relating to them the events that will soon take place in Jerusalem. He speaks prophetically about his passion. He speaks prophetically about his resurrection. But the disciples, as Luke clues us in on, do not understand it. They, they cannot grasp the concept that their, their leader, their teacher, would die and be resurrected. And Contrast to that, we have this blind beggar whose Mark tells us his name is Bartimaeus. This blind beggar heard Jesus and the crowd who were following him uh, coming into the city of Jericho, and he calls out in faith. He cries out for mercy. You see, this man believes on Jesus that he would give him sight. And that's what Luke is laying before us here. And so I want to talk to you about eyes of Faith. Well, let me just point out a couple things contextually here. First of all, Jesus is instructing his disciples, and he do, as he does so, he uses a title. He calls himself, refers to himself as the Son of Man. Now, this title is used often in the New Testament. It's used 13 times in the Gospel of Luke. It's used 64 times in all of the Gospels, all four Gospels. And so it's a very profound, very much used title. It's the ride from Daniel chapter 7. It's a title that Jesus gives to himself. So if we were to go to Daniel 7 this morning, we would see there at the end of that chapter, you would see the conclusion of what Daniel is laying out is this prophecy of judgment where the Ancient of Days is bringing judgment down on apostate humanities, judging the world. And so at the end of that, this vision concludes with the Ancient of Days, God the Father, giving dominion, giving glory, giving a kingdom to what Daniel 7 describes as the Son of Man. Jesus takes that title and applies it to himself. So he used this title... To speak of himself being the fulfillment of Daniel chapter 7. And in doing so, he's declaring that he is and he was the eternal sovereign king of the ages. 
So we find here a very high Christology within this text. It's a Christology that we would see all throughout the New Testament as the other writers of the epistles and the other apostles pick up on this Christology, this theology of who Christ is, that he's so much more than a teacher. He is, in fact, King of kings and Lord of lords and Savior, and that is what is proclaimed throughout the rest of the New Testament. Sadly, the disciples do not understand this title. They don't understand what it means. And, and, and that's the interesting thing, right? I mean, here are men who have been walking with Jesus and talking with Jesus and, and, and spending the nights with Jesus alongside the road. They've been watching him perform miracles. They've been watching him heal the lame and heal the sick and raise the dead and feed thousands on multiple occasions. Thousands of people are fed. And yet they miss what Jesus is saying here about himself. How could he do these things? They've heard Jesus talk about his death. They've heard him talk about what's going to happen in Jerusalem. They've heard him talk about this passion, this week of suffering that's going to take place, and yet they're oblivious to all of it. You see, for the disciples, they had no room in their concept of the Messiah for one who would suffer and one who would die. And yet that is juxtaposed over and against Bartimaeus's sightless faith. That Sightless faith stands in dramatic contrast to the lack of the faith of the disciples. Here's a man who lived on the outskirts of the city of Jericho, a beautiful city. It's known back then as the City of Roses. It's a city that sets about 17 miles west of Jerusalem, down the hill, toward the Wadi area, around the, sea, uh, or around the Dead Sea and the Jordan River as, as it's down there. And so if you were in Jericho, that was sort of a gateway to go to the city of Jerusalem. You would be traveling uphill from that city. And so many people would pass through this area to go to the city of Jerusalem for the week of feast. And here you have a man who lives on the outskirts. And his day probably began like every other day of his life. He had woken up early. He had uh, hobbled, made his way slowly to the normal place that he would set alongside the road so that he could beg. Maybe he was able to beg a, a piece of bread on the way, but there he is on the morning that Jesus is passing by. He finds himself in his normal place, and he's hearing all the things he's always heard. He's probably hearing donkeys pulling carts with produce and other goods, getting ready for the day. He's hearing ladies talk and, and, and kind of converse around the corner. He's hearing the, the, the clumps of the camel hooves as they travel around the rocky roads there. He's hearing all of those things, and these are normal sounds for him. He cannot see but if you know blind people, their other senses are tremendously acute, right? And so he can hear everything. And he begins to hear this rumbling off in the distance, and, and it gets louder and louder and louder. So he begins to ask about it, begins to inquire, what is this? And they begin to say, hey, we believe it's Jesus of Nazareth, and he's got a whole entourage coming with him. And he gets closer and closer and closer, and finally he realizes Jesus is upon him. Jesus is there in his midst. As Jesus approaches, he's heard about Jesus. There's no reason for us to believe that he's ever met Jesus. There's no reason for us to believe that he's ever had a conversation with Jesus or interacted with Jesus. But he's definitely heard of Jesus. So when they say Jesus of Nazareth is coming, he's not asking the question, who's that? Or I've never heard of that person. No, he knows who Jesus is. He's probably, i got to believe, that he's had interactions with others who have talked to Jesus or been healed by Jesus or been fed by Jesus because those are numbering in the thousands at this point. I mean, there's, what, 12, 15, 20,000 people on multiple occasions that were fed by Jesus. 
there on the banks of the Sea of Galilee. So those people are spread all throughout that region of Palestine. And so he's probably talked to people who have been healed of sickness and healed of blindness or had their loved ones raised from the dead or been fed by Jesus' hand himself. He knows who Jesus is, and so did everyone else in that region. The word on the street was that Jesus could be the long-awaited Messiah. In the first century culture of, uh, of Judea, there was a strong messianic expectation. They were longing, waiting for the Messiah to come. And so here's a blind beggar hearing that Jesus is coming, hearing his title, Jesus of Nazareth, but he calls out Jesus, son of David. We're going to talk about that more in just a moment. Title is important. The title is theological rather than geographical. It's calculated. It is a brazen messianic assertion. Only reference we see here in the Gospel of Luke, we know that God had promised King David long ago, long before this, way back in 2 Samuel chapter 7, that he would establish his dynasty, he would establish his kingdom, that there would never be a day that there wouldn't be a king sitting on the throne of Israel. And so Israel longed for that day. They longed for that return. And yet, because over century after century after century, through the Greeks and the Roman oppression, that prophecy had failed to come true. But they were longing for it. They were looking toward it, asking, wondering, could today be the day? And so Luke hears calculated contrasts between these disciples who were walking with Jesus and the blind man who had never met Jesus. What we want to look at this morning is this idea of what it means to have eyes of faith. And so first, let me just lay out two principles that I believe are important, something we need to hear, something we need to heed in our life, and that will help us understand the action points that we're going to see this morning. Two principles on eyes of faith. Here's the first thing I want you to see. Proximity to Jesus does not equate to faith in Jesus. You see, proximity to Jesus does not equate, does not equal faith in Jesus. Jesus. And so what do I mean by that? Here's what it is. The disciples were with Jesus every single day, right? You, you understand that. When we read through the Gospels, we know that to be true because almost every time we see Jesus, he is with one of the twelve. There are a few occasions when he's off praying by himself, but he quickly meets up with them again. But in almost every other occasion, Jesus is with either the three or the twelve or a huge multitude. Jesus is always with people, and they're always with him. And yet these men who had eaten with him, who had ministered with him, who had traveled with him, and in many ways performed miracles with him, like he sends them out by twos and they heal and they do cast out demons and do all these miraculous things. And yet here they are refusing to believe some very important aspects of what Jesus had taught and what Jesus had claimed about himself. So their lack of faith in his messianic identity is hindering their relationship with the Lord. Proximity does not equate to faith. And so today it's very possible to be close to the things of God, but miss them entirely, to miss them completely. It's, it's easy to be in the church and among the church and, and a participant in the activities of the church, but never have the faith that is required for salvation. You can sit all day long. You've probably heard this preacher analogy before, but you can sit all day long in your garage, you're never going to turn it into a car. I, I, here's another one. I can sit all day long in my boat and never turn into actually a good fisherman. Amen? I El Stinko. 
I try real hard, but just sitting in that and going through the motions doesn't make you what you're desiring to be. And so here are some disciples who are walking with Jesus and following Jesus, but they don't fully believe everything that Jesus is teaching. They have proximity, but they don't have the complete faith that they need. And so this morning, if you're sitting here in this place, in this building, amongst this church, it is a good place to be. But you need more than just the proximity of God's people. You need God's spirit in your life. You need the life of Jesus Christ. Here's the second principle. Faith in Jesus does not equate to proximity with Jesus, or does equate to proximity with Jesus. You see, Bartimaeus had never met the Lord. He'd never laid eyes on him. He'd never experienced a miracle. He'd never had the privilege like the disciples of traveling and doing ministry. But the day he met Jesus outside of Jericho, he believed on him. He had faith. He trusted him. It goes back to that teaching that we looked at a few weeks ago. You see, we're to have childlike faith. That is, like, just like an infant, just like a toddler, we're to thrust our life in complete dependence, complete trust upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what he did. He believed Jesus. His faith led to proximity with Jesus. It brought him into relationship with the Lord. He believed his messianic identity. Jesus was so much more than just a figurehead. He was so much more than just someone who could give him a physical uh, healing. He was, in fact, Lord and King. And so today, you're not required to have a history with the church uh, before coming into relationship with Jesus. You're not required to, to fix yourself or to take the broken spaces of your life and, and correct them. In fact, the Bible will tell us you can't do those things. You shouldn't even try to do those things. And, and so what did we sing this morning? Just as I am. I love that old hymn. When I was a kid, that was probably the hymn that was saying during the response time almost every single Sunday. And I think it's because my pastor loved to give a long invitation, and that, that, that uh, song has like 49 verses, and so you just can drag that sucker out. And so that, that's what we did. But I can remember as a kid, and I didn't realize this what was happening, but I look back on it now, and that song was shaping my theology. That song was shaping the way I understood the gospel because I began to see it for what it is. We come to Jesus, not all buttoned up and clean and looking good so that we're acceptable. No, I've dragged myself in there broken, bruised, and dead, and Jesus accepts me just the way I am. Faith in Jesus equates to proximity with Jesus. When I believe on Jesus, that brings me near. I cannot and I should not expect to be near and then be accepted and given faith. No, it's the other way around. And so with those two principles in mind... I want to give you some action points this morning. So we want to be in Christ and not just around Christ. And this is going to require eyes of faith. Here's the three things that are required if we're going to have eyes of faith. Number one, we're going to have to see one's need. We're going to have to see our own spiritual need. Bartimaeus understood and he recognized his need. He said he owned his blindness. He didn't march out to that street that day. He didn't act like he wasn't blind. He didn't stand up and, and pretend to be something he wasn't. No, he owned his blindness. He sat there where he always sat. And because he couldn't see Jesus or understand what was happening, he asked the question, what's taking place? Who's coming? And he was told it's Jesus of Nazareth. And he cries out in faith. Here's a man who believed in his or understood his need and believed on Jesus Christ for 
the healing. As he heard Jesus approaching, he didn't lean back into conventional wisdom that would tell us you got to clean yourself up, you got to fix yourself, you, you got to make yourself presentable. He didn't do any of those things. Instead, what Bartimaeus did is he called out to Jesus. He understood his need. He understood that Jesus had the cure for that need, the answer for that need. He had the antidote for that need. He understood that Jesus was his only hope, and he didn't hold back. He saw the need, he recognized the need, and he brought it before Jesus. So I'm going to tell you today, if you're spiritually dead and in your sins, as Paul would tell us in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, if you're dead in sins and trespasses, then you don't need to hide it. You need to lay it before the Lord. Because here's the truth about that. God already knows you're dead. God already knows you're sinful. God already knows you're hopeless. God already knows you're on your way to a devil's hell. God already knows everything about you. He knows your, 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 your wickedness. He knows the thoughts that you think. He knows the words that you say. He knows you that no one else knows. And he loves you despite, in spite of it. Jesus loves you. How do you know that? Because he calls us to himself. You think that Bartimaeus was like the most popular guy in Jericho? Not at all. He's a beggar on the street. He's the lowest of the low class. Probably the only people lower than him would have been the lepers in the area. And they were in a, soul, a completely different colony somewhere else. But this man is not on the totem pole of the who's who of Jericho. And yet when he calls out to Jesus, when he knows his need, recognizes his need, owns his need, and he cries out to Jesus, Jesus stops in his tracks, looks over to him, and calls him to himself. And today he'll do that for you. Here's the second thing. If we're going to have eyes of faith, we must know who Jesus is. Bartimaeus asked the people, who's approaching? And he's told Jesus of Nazareth. But when he calls out to Jesus, he doesn't use their title, Jesus of Nazareth. He uses a different title, Jesus, son of David. Now, I know you guys are great biblical scholars, and you understand that for him, or for the people to say Jesus of Nazareth, there's nothing wrong with that because we, we understand the canon of Scripture. We understand that Jesus lived in Nazareth. That was his hometown. That was where he's from. And, and so if you grew up in Chesterfield, we would say this is so-and-so from Chesterfield, right? That's the idea there. And so there's nothing wrong with that. We also know our Bible's good enough to know that that's part of what the Scriptures would say about the Messiah, that he's going to be from up there, right? Matthew chapter 2 talks about that. So we get all of that. But here's a man who doesn't use the title of Nazareth. He says, Jesus, son of David. He changes it all together. See, he understands that everything that people have been talking about this Jesus and all of the evidence that he is doing these miracles and feeding people and raising the dead, that this guy is not a normal dude. There's something different about Jesus. And so he equates Jesus to the awaited Messiah. And he knows that this Messiah is going to come from the line of David, that he's going to be a son of David, that he's going to be that long-awaited Savior King. And so for Bartimaeus, he sees his need. He needs sight. He understands there's no hope for him outside of something else or someone else. He looks at Jesus and sees that this man has given sight to others. He's raised the dead. He's fed the hungry so he can meet my need as well. He knows who Jesus is. This morning, I just got a question for you. Do you know who Jesus is? If you want to look on Jesus with eyes of faith, it's going to require that you know who he is. It's going to require that you understand that he is God, that he is the Savior. 
And so you may feel like you're a lost cause, like I said last Sunday, that you're without hope in this world, that you're cut off. You, you may feel like you're drowning in sin, and there's no hope for you whatsoever. And the reality is that is true for you. But God, in yourself, in your own, in your abilities, in your religiosity, in your attempts, they're all fail, but Jesus can help you. So we got to know who Jesus is, and he is the Savior King. He's the one who desires to change your life. Leads us to a third thing. We must cry out for mercy. We got to believe who Jesus is, and then we have to cry out for mercy. I love how Luke describes this encounter. It seems as if Immediately after hearing that Jesus is coming, Bartimaeus begins to, to, to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus, son of David, have mercy. I mean, he, he's sitting, more than likely, he's sitting on the ground. And he's got people all around him because everywhere Jesus went, especially at this point in his life and ministry, crowds were flocking. And, and so this is nearing the time when he's going to be entering Jerusalem. So all of these crowds are coming. They know from the city that Jesus is approaching. So more and more people are flooding out of Jericho to witness Jesus come into the city gates. And so here's Bartimaeus on the ground, surrounded by all of these people, and he doesn't care at all who hears, but he screams at the top of his lungs, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me, over and over and over again. So much so that the people begin to get annoyed around him. They look back, rebuke him, tell him to shut his mouth. Who are you, you dog? You don't need to be reaching out to Jesus. He doesn't care about you, and yet he never relents. He cries out for mercy, cries out for mercy. And what does Jesus do? He stops. i got to believe there's at least hundreds of people in this scene. And Jesus doesn't look at any one of them except for Bartimaeus. And he calls for him. And he directs him. He directs others to bring him over to himself. In Mark chapter 10, verse 50, he tells us there that Bartimaeus got up and he put down his cloak and he goes to Jesus. You may say, well, that's, what's the big deal about this cloak? A cloak was like a robe, and, and a cloak would have been used for warmth. It would have been used for protection from the elements, you know, like weather, um, rain. And so for a blind man to put that down meant that there's a likely chance he would never find that cloak again because if you're blind, you can't find stuff, right? you got to have somebody help you. And so when you're in a crowd so large as what he was probably in, to set down his cloak was a big deal because he probably would never take it up. But here's what I want you to see in that. Here's what I believe Luke's cluing us in on. Here's a man who knew, knew his need, knew who Jesus was, cries out for mercy, and in that cry for mercy, Jesus responds to his faith, and he demonstrates even more faith by putting the cloak down, getting up and walking to Jesus. Here's what I believe is happening here. He so believed Jesus could and would touch his life and heal his blindness that he figured he could go back and find his cloak. Right? Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? I want to recover my sight. 
I'm led to believe just by the language that there is a point in his life where he could see and he's lost his blindness. He wants to recover his sight. So he understands that when Jesus touches my eyes or Jesus speaks over my eyes, I'm going to be able to see once again. I'm going to be able to go back and pick up my cloak. He cries for mercy out of faith. This morning, if you've never given your life to Jesus and you're dead in your sin and you're at a place where this man is in in his life, here's what you need to do. Know your need. Know who Jesus is. Cry out for mercy and trust him for salvation. We need to cry for mercy. I think one of the problems that we have that leads to the reason we don't cry out for mercy is we don't believe we need it. Do you think you need mercy today? If you've got your Bible, flip with me real quick to Ephesians 2. Maybe you can look on the screen as well. But if you're of the camp that says, you know what, I I don't think I need mercy. I'm a pretty good person. I mean, I I, I don't do anything bad. Uh, I'm not mean. I don't steal. I don't kill. I don't, you know, I I don't do bad stuff. I'm just a good person. I'm moral. I'm upstanding. I'm ethical. I pay my taxes. I love my wife. I I don't beat my kids too much. Right? I'm a good person. I don't need mercy. The Bible says you do. Look at Ephesians chapter 2. Paul says, and you were dead in trespasses, in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. He's talking to believers here who are now redeemed. He says, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once, once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So he says to the Ephesians, hey, there was once a day before you met Jesus Christ that you were the scum of the scum and you deserved a devil's hell. That's the James Taylor translation of this passage. And he's right. All of us have been born into sin. We sin because we are sinful, right? And that sin in our life is a rebellion, an affront to God Almighty, and it deserves an infinite punishment because we've sinned against an infinite God. And so we deserve the hell that has been uh, designed and uh, put in place for the devil himself. That's where we're all headed. We need the mercy of God to rescue us from that destination. And thankfully, that's what the Lord does through his son, Jesus Christ. So we continue in verse 4. We're children of wrath, just like the rest of mankind. But look at verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we are dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. It is by grace that you've been saved. You see, Paul here is telling these Ephesian believers He's describing for them the beauty of the gospel. He's talking to them about their spiritual condition and how through Jesus they've been changed by grace and by mercy. Those who were once dead in their sin, those who were once under the just wrath of a holy God, have been made alive to God through Jesus Christ, and that is the beauty of his mercy. This redemption took place as they cried out for mercy. This morning, I just want you to think about proximity. What is your proximity to Jesus? How close are you? What does that look like? What is your proximity to Jesus? In other words, are you in Christ? Are you a follower of Jesus Christ? Or are you simply around the things of Christ? You're around the things of God. You're among the church. You are participating in the activities 
of the church. I, I lived a, a, a good many years as a young man in that category. I was in the church. I was among the church. I was engaged in the activities of the church. But I've told you before, I was lost during those years. And if I would have died, I would have experienced the just wrath of a holy God against my rebellion against him. So what's your proximity? Are you in faith or are you around faith? God promises to those who would call out for him, to him, that they would receive the gift of eternal life. But the truth is, in our sin, we, we don't want it. The truth is, we want to do it ourselves. <clears throat> Excuse me. We are much like that village idiot that we started out with earlier. You see, what we want to do in our sinfulness is we want to shoot the arrows of our life. We want, to, we want to dictate the trajectory of our life. We want to dictate how we're going to do or where we're going to be in eternity. So we're shooting all of these arrows, and then we go and get the paint bucket, and we get the ladder, and we climb up on the edge of the barn, and we draw a circle around where our arrows hit, and we say, look at us, I hit, or look at me, I hit the mark. That's not what the Bible says at all. The Bible tells us that the mark, the standard, the goal is God himself. We talked about that last week. That he is the standard of holiness and we're judged by him. The Bible tells us that we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so when we think about that term sin, what is that? It's missing the mark. But it's not missing the mark accidentally. It's just like that village idiot. We take our bow and we grab our quiver and we put all the arrows in it and we shoot to where we want the arrows to go and then we draw the circle and we say, look at me, I've hit the mark. No, you didn't hit the mark. You missed the mark because you rebelled against God. You created your own standard. You sought autonomy away from the Lord. Therefore, you're in your sin and under the judgment of holy God. But when we recognize, man, that's my heart. That's my disposition. That's my rebellion. And that's the judgment coming against me. And woe to me. Like Isaiah in Isaiah 6, I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. And repenting from that sin, from that disposition, then we're in a place where God in his grace and his mercy can look at us like he looked at Bartimaeus and say, what do you want me to do for you? And we say, I want my sins forgiven. I want a new life. I want to be transformed. I'm tired of the way I've been living. I'm tired of the, of the payment and the, and, and the, and the uh, effects of my decisions. I want a new life. This morning, if we're going to have eyes of faith, if we're going to come into relationship with Jesus Christ, it's going to require us to understand that proximity to Jesus does not equate to faith in Jesus. But if we'll have faith in Jesus, it will equate to a proximity with Jesus. And so this morning, where are you at? Where are you at in your proximity to Jesus? Have you faith into him? Or are you hoping that somehow, some way, he'll kind of let you in because you're a good person? Let's pray. Father, this morning, I am grateful for the grace and the mercy of Jesus Christ. Left to myself, I, I know I, I'm a crispy critter. I know that I deserve a devil's hell. I know I deserve everything that the Bible describes and, and, and talks about as far as judgment because my sin is great. But Lord, I am grateful, infinitely grateful 
that where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. And so while sin is great in each one of our hearts and each one of our lives, your grace is much greater than that. Your forgiveness overshadows that. Lord, in other words, you can come in to each and every one of our lives and our situations and change them. No one is beyond the reach of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not even a lowly blind beggar sitting alongside the road outside of the city of Jericho. You saw him, you knew him, you spoke to him, and you changed his life. This morning, there may be some sitting in this room, some watching us online, some that will watch us in the days ahead, that that's the situation that they find themselves in. They are in sin. They are under the judgment of God. You're calling them to faith and repentance. And Lord, I pray this morning that they would answer that call, that they would turn from themselves and put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Father, I pray for us as believers that, Lord, that we would recognize that there's times in our life that we can get boggled down in sin. And, And Lord, we need to Lay those things aside and run with Jesus once again. God, I pray that you would also encourage us that that the gospel that changed our lives is the same gospel that can change our neighbor, our family member, and our friend. And I pray that we'd be challenged to share it with them. We're going to move into a time of response, Lord, and I just trust that your spirit is going to continue to move in our hearts. Lord, I thank you for those who've responded even already this morning. God, I pray that this morning there would be more of that. Help us to be open and honest with ourselves. Open and honest with you. And may you call us to faith, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We trust that you and your family have been encouraged and blessed today. If you have just made a decision to follow Jesus, or if you would like to pray with someone, or even if you want to know more about our church, please contact our church office or send us an email. We are looking forward to seeing you next week here in person or online. See you then.